This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Over the last um, 50 years in America, you've had 20 million Black babies being murdered. Wow. But yet, very few people seem to be paying attention to that. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. His name is Samuel Say. He was born in Ghana, lives in Canada now. He's a wonderful writer and blogger. He's a pro-life activist. He's a He blogs with social commentary on what's going on in culture and what's going on with the church. Samuel, it's so great to have you here. For anyone who's unfamiliar with your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank uh, first. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege. I'm very grateful. Um, yeah, I, um, as you said, my name is Samuel Say. I blog at Slow to Write, and um, I'm known, I suppose, for primarily two uh, main reasons. Uh, I blog at Slow to Write, uh, where I blog about racial issues, cultural issues, political issues with biblical theology. Um, then I've also, for the last couple of years, been involved in the pro-life movement. Uh, working for an organization here in Canada named CCBR. And I always prefer saying CCBR because the the, the name is really long. It's uh, the <laughs> Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. It's a bit of a mouthful, but um, yeah, that's what, uh, that's what I've been working on over the last um, two to five years, uh, blogging and then uh, doing pro-life work. Awesome. So I've been currently recording just a whole bunch of episodes that are going to start releasing after the new year. And what's interesting is this theme seems to be emerging with all of my guests, and that's just what is happening with the church? What's happening in the American church and even globally with Christians? And then how is that matching patterns of things we're seeing in the world. You know, the last episode was uh, John Cooper from Skillet, kind of based on his viral post from Facebook a year ago that was asking that question, what is happening in the church? And so I thought you would be such an important voice to bring into this conversation because you have controversial views on things. Do I? You do. (laughs) I'm just joking. I know, I know. But you are slow to write, which is what I like about you. By the way, that blog is slowtowrite.com. 
S-L-O-W to write.com. And you can check out all of Samuel's work there. But it, you know, it seems like every time some kind of big cultural thing happens, you take your time to think about it and to think biblically about it. You're not reactionary. You're not an alarmist. Um, you don't use inflammatory language. I, one thing I really appreciate about you is you try to write honestly about what's going on and you try to write biblically. And sometimes the biblical view is not going to be the most popular view in culture and even sadly among Christians. And so I want to get into some of those issues in a moment, um, but I'd love for our listeners and our viewers to know a little bit more about your backstory. So you were mm. born in Ghana and you now live in Canada. What? How old were you when you came here and what was that like for you? Just give us a little bit of backstory about your life and your story. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I was born in Ghana, um, as you said. I was born to um, a single mother in, in Ghana. And I always say that I was raised by the greatest woman in the world, the greatest mother in the world, in the greatest West African country in the world. But I'm not biased, though. I'm not biased <laughs> at all. Um, no. So, yeah, um, I was, yeah, my dad left my family, left my mom and myself uh, before I was born. So, I couldn't tell you what it looks like. If you were to walk by me right now, I wouldn't know who he is. Mm. But yet, by the grace of God, I know my mom really well. Her and I are very tight. Um, she's a godly woman who uh, raised me with patience, with love. And uh, I required a lot of patience. I was a horrible <laughs> kid. Um, but yeah, so when I was 10 years old, um, my mom remarries. And uh, well, actually, when... I was seven, my mom moves to Canada, but I wasn't able to join her until three years later. So there was a period of my life, um, you know, three years where I didn't have a father or my mom in my life. Um, this is way back in the 90s where, and we were very poor, so we didn't have access to cell phones or even a home phone the way that we would do now, um, especially in Ghana. But uh, by the grace of God, we're, we get reunited when I'm 10 years old in Montreal, Canada. Um, but unfortunately, my mom's second marriage uh, wasn't any better than her marriage of my father. Um, my stepfather was a very, was a very abusive uh, man, and he had threatened to take my mom's life. So um, God graciously removed us from that environment, and we were forced to move into a shelter uh, in Toronto. And then eventually, through my mom's incredible work ethic and perseverance, she was able to overcome all that and um, you know, own a home. Mm. But throughout all of that, I've, I've known for a long time that I was a sinner. Uh, I knew as early as five years old, where I was committing acts that only married couples should be committing, um, you know, in marriage naturally. And that's, you know, that's one of the consequences of growing up without a father. And my mom was working so many jobs that nobody mm. was home. So I became exposed to certain things that I, I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. Um, so I knew because of that, since five years old, that I was a hellbound sinner who needed the grace of God. And yet I loved my sin much more than I loved Jesus. I was raised in the church, but um, I hated Christ and I loved my sin. And it wasn't until when I was 19 um, and I went to a young adult retreat and um, I heard a sermon. It wasn't a very good sermon. Looking back now, it was a <laughs> terrible sermon. And it was 
to be to be um, honest, it was preached by a false teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't take any pleasure in saying that, but um, it was a false teacher who was preaching that particular sermon. But yet, God is good, and all this preacher had to say was Christ died for sinners. Wow! And that must have been the I don't know the ten thousandth time I had heard that phrase. But it was like I heard it for the first time. And all of a sudden, the Christ that I hated, I loved. And the sins that I loved, I now hated. And um, yeah, that's that's how I became a Christian. And then through all that, I ended up um, discovering a passion for theology, knowing more about Christ and wanting to share that passion with others, Mm -hmm. which eventually led to me pursuing blogging and uh, pro-life work. Wow. So that that's such an interesting thing that you brought out that this was actually a false teacher but the thing he said that was true that's that's what the holy spirit used to convict you of your sin and um cuz I know that there are, there are a lot of people I, I receive emails from people who might have been involved in some you know a church that had some false teaching or false teachers trying to parse those things out and um that's that's an interesting interesting thing that happened in your life as part of your testimony so one thing that you're really passionate about uh, writing about is the issue of abortion and and pro-life. So when did that become a passion for you, and why do you think that it did? Hmm. I think the first sign of my passion uh, for pro-life work came shortly after I learned that uh, one of my friends had um, gotten an abortion. That is particularly because, you know, when I was 18, a year before I became a Christian, one of my church members, one of my close friends at the time, um, she called me and said, Sam, what would you say to a girl considering an abortion? And um, I wasn't, I had no idea that she was being pressured by her boyfriend to get an abortion. Mm. I didn't know that she was crying for help. So I said, I don't know. And I was being honest at the time, I didn't know. But afterward, a year a year after that, she came to me when, 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 when I was 19 and when I had become a Christian, she came to me and said that a few days after she asked me that question, she got an abortion. Mm. And that'll always stick with you, right? Um, so from then on, I wanted to investigate how do I speak to young girls? How do I speak to anybody who's considering an abortion? And that's when I started investigating, you know, looking through the scriptures and understanding um, what the Bible says about preborn babies. That indeed they are preborn babies. They are not just a clump of cells. Mm. Uh, David says that you know before, uh, you know, he was you know God made him in the womb, and that um, you know we also know that you know even in in the uh, b- the book of Luke, it talks about how um, it talks about how um, John the Baptist leaped in the womb. Mm. So you have so many scriptures that that deal with the pro life issue, and I started investigating that. However, it wasn't until I, blo- I started blogging about racial issues when I learned that Black Lives Matter, in particular, I created my blog because of Black Lives Matter as a response to them, mm. and. I became more and more disturbed when I realized that the biggest issue facing black people is abortion, mm. but yet a group that professes 
to believe that Black Lives Matter, that's her name, they don't believe that Black uh, preborn babies matter. Mm. Um, you know, to a point where they're radically pro-abortion. Um, when, when Planned Parenthood cherishes you as an organization, you know you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And Planned Parenthood cherishes and loves uh, Black Lives Matter. So I realized that there in America, for instance, there are 300,000 black babies being killed every year. Um, you know, so slavery, through slavery, um, you had 12 million Africans moved, forced from Africa to the new world. Well, over the last um, 50 years in America, you've had 20 million black babies being murdered. Wow. But yet very few people seem to be paying attention to that. So that was stirring within me more and more passion for it. And eventually a friend of mine told me about, about an opportunity to join um, you know, my current organization to do pro-life work. And I immediately grabbed onto that because I wanted to be a helpful voice, especially a black voice mm -hmm. on the abortion issue. And I want to get into your views on Black Lives Matter and just some of the civil unrest we've been seeing in our culture lately, because that's actually when I first heard about you was uh, just the initial period of time following the George Floyd events and uh, and the subsequent protests and, and writing that we saw. Uh, you, you were slow to speak, slow to write, um, but but your your perspective was uh, just so Jesus centered, so so biblical. Uh, biblically centered. And so I want to get into that in a moment, but I don't want to get off this abortion topic just just so quickly. Tell us about the work that you do, because I think that, you know, as I'm talking to you, I have a passion uh, for that issue as well. And, you know, I can, I, can in, I can do podcasts about it. I can try to raise awareness. Um, and I'm sure that there are people listening to and watching this who think, I want to do, uh, there's things I want to do to help with the pro-life, uh, you know, the pro-life cause. Uh, tell us about the work that you do and maybe help us understand what can those of us who maybe hmm. don't have a full-time job or, you know, a full-time ministry in that area, what can we do as well to help hmm. this, this pro-life cause? Hmm. One of the, um, it's bittersweet in a sense that so many babies are being killed, which is obviously bitter and horrible. But because of that, there are so many opportunities for people to save babies at the same time. Um, so in the pro-life movement, you have three major facets. You have the political side, you have the prophetic or the educational side, and then you have the pastoral, the counseling side. So the pastoral side would be things like the pregnancy care centers. Mm. And uh, so many Christians are so involved in that. I mean, um, you know, people don't know this. Uh, I think people don't, at least most people don't know about this, is that although there are so many abortion centers in North America, they are outnumbered by four to one uh, when you compare them to pregnancy care centers. Wow. So we're doing really, really good work in that area. So, but, but yeah, we need more Christians there. Absolutely. We need more people volunteering, um, you know, donating and uh, praying for um, those kind of care centers. On the political side, we also need, of course, more people as well. Um, we especially are lacking in more bold, courageous Christians. Mm. Um, joining their political side. And um, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this, but that's one of the ramifications of why the church right now seems 
um, at least many people anyways within the church seems unable to deal with these issues because for so long we've been avoiding the political issue. Mm. Um, if we are to be committed to justice in the world today, you really cannot accomplish justice without politics. Um, justice or politics is just justice applied or injustice applied. If you choose not to act, you're either going to be neglecting justice or you'll be allowing just injustice to thrive. Um, and then in the prophetic or, or educational side, that's the one that I'm involved in, where at our organization, uh, particularly I, I meet with pastors to get them more involved in the pro-life movement, especially here in Canada, we have um, a lot of silence. Um, from the church on this issue. Mm. So I'm meeting with pastors and reaching out to them to, for them to get more involved um, in, in the pro-life movement. Um, I also go to schools and I go to major areas where, I don't know, maybe you saw it, but it went viral. I had a picture of a pre-born baby who had been aborted. Yeah, and, um, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's a hard image to look at. Uh, I hate that image. And because I hate that image, that's why I go there. I want people to hate abortion too yeah. after they see that image. And uh, we go, yes, we speak to students and we speak to all different kinds of people. And when they see that image, for many of them, it's the first time where they really yes. see what abortion really is. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's so many ways to join the pro-life movement. And we know that not everyone can become um, a full-time member of the pro-life movement, but donating, supporting, volunteering, and especially praying is, a, you know, sometimes it may seem as if it's, uh, it's inadequate, but I've been able to change minds on abortion. I've been able to save babies because I have people who are praying for me. Yeah. You may not know they're praying for me. I may not know they're praying for me, but God knows and God is answering their prayer. Yeah. You know, uh, it's interesting you talking about the, the the photograph. It's it's kind of a horrific photograph uh, that you were holding. You know, you'd blown it up on a on a sign and were holding it for people to see. And I think you may be right. I think there are a lot of people who maybe haven't thought the issue through very well because they haven't seen the photographs of yeah. what the, you need to see with your eyeballs. What yeah. this is, it, you yeah. know, you don't you, you don't it doesn't take a philosophy degree. It, you just need to yeah. see what you're looking at and you know what you're looking at. And so Absolutely. I think it's powerful. So we've done our, our research and we've we've discovered that 70% of people who see our images, they develop more negative feelings about abortion. Yeah. That's seven out of 10, 70%. No doubt. So, and, and we see that right in the street. We see many people, I, this, a few weeks ago, there was some guy who was very angry at me and he was yelling at me for being out there. And he didn't mean to say this, but he said, uh, I asked him like, well, why are you so angry? He says, well, you're out here showing people pictures of murdered babies. And I yes. said, look at what you just said. He said, oh, that's not what I said. I was like, no, that's what you said. Yeah. You may not have meant to, but you, your, your, your eyes have seen what it's seen. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, even George Floyd, right? You know, I was going back to me, perhaps a Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. issue. There's a reason why George Floyd has become such a, um, and if I use the word popular name, but there's a reason why everyone knows mm -hmm. who he is now. There's a reason why his death um, just ignited the the whole um, you know critical race theory or Black Lives Matter issue. That's because every single person saw in some version or another they saw a, a knee on his neck or mm -hmm. on his back, right. and that so images like that are very powerful. 
Yes, yes. Well, let's 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 go here. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. And you mentioned critical race theory. I did an episode on critical race theory with with our friend Monique Dusan. Um, and so so we gave a little bit of a primer what what this is about, what it what's going on with it. Um, give us a just a, a short working definition of critical race theory for those people who may not be familiar or may not have seen that episode. And then I want to ask you more specifically about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Critical race theory essentially teaches that white people are inherently racist and oppressive against black people. But particularly, it also looks into analyzing all the different ways that black people are oppressed in society, especially black women. Um, so it is a postmodern or Marxist worldview that primarily is looking at all the intersecting and different ways uh, in their views that black people are oppressed in society. And not so much by laws or policies, but just by, in their mind, perceptions and disparities in society. Mm. So they would define racism not as, and this is, you know, books like Ibrahim, Ibrahim Kendi's um, uh, How to Be a Racist or, or White Fragility. They would say that racism is not an individual act, but it's a systemic, um, you know, and natural view that white people have towards black people. Okay. And so uh, you've spoken out against this ideology. And um, why do you think that that is incompatible with Christianity? Yeah. Well, <laughs> critical race theory condemns white people for being white people, mm. just being white. And uh, even the view that you don't have to be intentionally racist to be racist, it's unbiblical, it's wrong. Um, the Bible is very clear in James, the book of James, I think it's James James 2, I'm, I'm forgetting, I think it's James 2, where it's very clear that racism is really just partiality mm. um, and partiality is intentional. Uh, in fact, uh, James says that partiality is when you you make distinctions amongst people. Mm. Um, but yet critical race theory says that the view that racism is intentional or really uh, uh, par- bias or partiality is actually racism in itself. It's racist to believe that, you know, that, um, that, partiality against people of a different skin color is, is, is what's racism. Um, but more than that, it, it has a different view of truth. Mm. It, it assumes the worst of people. It, it, um, it, um, it does not, of course, lead to a pursuit of repentance. It does not lead to genuine reconciliation. Mm. It does not lead, does not give anybody hope for the world, does not point to Christ. It's actually anti-Christ in that everything the Bible teaches about truth and love, it rejects. Mm. It's a very um, false and hateful ideology that is completely foreign to scripture. It's one of the things, it's one of the ideologies that the Bible calls us to to um, to reject and to hold all all thoughts captive to Christ, as we tear down those kind of uh, worldly philosophies. Mm. Why do you think that ideas that are behind critical race theory? Why do you think that's gaining so much traction in the church? Hmm. 
there are so many reasons I think behind it, but in particular, I think you we have a generation of Christians, um, including myself and older Christians, who for so long as a reaction to Christians in the past who were sometimes idolized in politics, and this would be many of the fundamentalists, many people over the last, many Christians over the last 20, 30 years, um, especially the last 15, 20 years, I suppose, they've been neglecting pursuing a theological um, understanding of politics. And because of that, you have so many Christians who raised, who were raised in households or in churches who did not have a good biblical view of justice. Mm. So when they went to school, when they went to college, or even before that high school, well, their teachers and their profs are telling them how to understand justice, but not from a biblical point of view, not from scripture, but from culture, but from, from the world. And I think now people are completely unprepared to understand critical race theory from a biblical point of view mm. because they've been conditioned throughout the last 10, 15 years of their education, uh, either from the world or from academia, from, from um, entertainment, from every corner of the culture, they've been conditioned to embrace critical race theory. So some of them may not know the word or the term critical race theory, but they already have been um, compelled to accept its premises. Mm. I think another reason is that for so long, obviously, in, um, in, in the West, you had Christians, not all Christians, but you had some Christians who were silent um, or apathetic or supportive of slavery and segregation. And I think for particularly a lot of white Christians today, the pressures of embracing critical race theory leads them to believe that if they don't embrace it, they will be looked upon the same way that many of our um, Christian forefathers in the um, you know, times of slavery and segregation are seen as today, mm. as you know, embracing the culture and not teaching the scriptures and what it says about racism. So now you have people who, I, because of white guilt, because mm. of fear, are now ironically doing very much of the same things that the Christians during slavery and segregation were doing, which is, you know, if you were supportive or apathetic of racism in the past during slavery and segregation, you were doing that because that's what the culture was at at the time. And yet many Christians today, you know, by trying not to be like the Christians who were apathetic over slavery and segregation are now embracing what the culture is saying yeah. about racism. So I think that fear, that guilt, um, knowing the history is a big part of why many Christians today are embracing critical race theory. That's such a great point because I think that a lot of Christians look out and we, you know, we we acknowledge racism exists and that it's a sin and that it's wrong and we should stand against it. But then the world comes along with this this ideology that just seems to be sweeping up everything from schools to government to everything, and it seems like okay, well that's the answer, so we'll just we'll we'll go with that. And I think you put your finger on something too that is really relevant, and that's this fear uh, that. If we don't do something and do it right this time, then history is going to look back on us uh, as it does the people who wouldn't stand
stand with Martin Luther King Jr., for example. And so I think exactly. this is a huge thing because this actually, this charge, I, I've actually read this several times in, in books and in blog posts and even heard it on podcasts. Like you, because a lot of Christians, like white Christians, will say, well, I would have stood with Martin Luther King Jr. And then people will say, well, your response to Black Lives Matter shows you whether or not you would have stood with Martin Luther King Jr. And essentially, if you're not exactly. standing with Black Lives Matter, then you wouldn't have stood with Martin Luther King Jr. I wonder if you can sort of parse that out for us. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? The irony is that I'm more inclined to believe people who embrace critical race theory, particularly white Christians who embrace critical race theory today, would have been more likely to not stand with Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. First, critical race theory is racist, yeah. right? Critical race theory is actually goes against all the things that Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Yes. That you judge people based on the content of their character and not their skin color. But going back to what I was saying before too, again, the sim critical race theory is embraced by the culture today. So to stand against critical race theory actually is, 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 um, is more akin to what the Christians in you know, 50 years ago or 200 years ago, what those Christians who were rejecting the culture's views on racism, mm. that is, you know, that is so, so when, so people today who bravely, courageously, people like yourself, I'm black, it's a bit easier for me to speak this, you know, with, with more courage, but non-black people today who choose to say, no, I will stand against the pressures and I will stand with God. You know, you know, I've told, I've said this before, but no person should believe that they need to be in solidarity with black people. That's dangerous. Mm. I don't want anyone to think they need to be united with me. No, no, no. I want people to, to be, um, to be in solidarity with Christ and the truth. And if you do that, you will love black people and all people the way you're supposed to. Mm. But if you take an idol out mm. of being embraced by black people, you will be more apt. To, I've said this before that right now it's popular to cater and to pander to black people. 20, 30 years from now, what if the culture, you know, becomes anti-black? as a reaction to critical race. Mm. Those people now will be tempted to cater and to pander to white people because the sin is the same. You are choosing to make an idol out of people because you feel that you'll be more embraced by them if you do so. Mm. But if you stand with the Bible now, you would stand with the Bible 200 years ago or 50 years ago or a thousand years from now, right? The Bible is timeless but the world is constantly changing into ways that will stand against the scriptures, mm. whether it's anti-black or anti-white, um, you know, just standing with the scriptures, you, if, you, if you do so, you will always be in the right. Boy, what a good word. That's a great word. And it's tough because I'll go on Twitter and it seemed like there, just even over the last year, maybe even just last nine or 10 months, 
at first on my evangelical Twitter, you know, it was like everybody was just in moral panic, chaos, you know, sharing the BLM hashtag. Everybody was trying to figure out the right thing to do. And then people started speaking out against critical race theory. And then it seemed like some major evangelical leaders in the beginning weren't really taking it seriously. Like nobody really buys critical race theory. Then they're realizing, okay, yeah. well, maybe they do. But then the thing I'm seeing now from big leaders, they'll say things like, well, yeah, critical race theory is wrong and we condemn that. But if you're bringing up critical race theory right now and you're white, that's just your way of sort of, you know, that's just the white response. That's just the white thing to do. <laughs> what, what would you say about that? <laughs> it's it's not um, easy navigating yeah, these waters. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm laughing because it's it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I'm trying to watch my words carefully here <laughs> because it's very frustrating. People who embrace critical race theory are increasingly claiming they reject it. It's pretty obvious to me that I think a lot of evangelical leaders who've embraced critical race theory recognize that there has been rightly so strong pushback on that now mm. and i don't want to assume many people's motives but there are some obvious cases of people being deceptive i don't say that lightly mm -hmm. but uh, I, okay i'll say this benny hinn if you re if you reject well not reject but if you are unfamiliar with his content with his with his preaching He's been one of the, the biggest advocates against the prosperity gospel. Mm. He's denounced the prosperity gospel so many times. He does it almost every year. Mm. He does that because he knows he gets so much pushback from people about it. And then when he says that, then he continues teaching the exact same thing, the mm. prosperity gospel. So you have so many leaders today in, you know, in, in, in the church who are using the same reasoning as critical race theory, using the same rhetoric, using the same terms, understanding the world through criti a critical race theory lens, but yet they'll say they reject critical race theory. Mm. And I think part of that is because they know the pushback, but I think also, of course, if you are a Christian, I'm sure many of them do not embrace all facets of critical race theory, of course not, because there are some aspects that are very much, uh, well, it's very much pro LGBTQ and pro a number of things that are clearly against the scriptures. And I think I can't imagine that the vast majority of Christians who embrace critical race theory would embrace that aspect as well, too, mm. including also being pro-abortion. Nevertheless, they embrace very much of the core values, yeah. being the oppressor versus the oppressed aspect of critical race theory. Um, the out of the postmodern and Marxist aspect of critical race theory, um, where, so for example, um, okay, I'm not sure if I should mention his name or not, but there is, there was a Christian leader who did a two-part series on um, critical race theory just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and he you know, he says he denounces critical race theory, but yet as he's doing so, he talks about how every time he brings up disparities as essentially evidence 
of a systemic racism, people just aren't willing to hear him out and mm. would claim he's being a critical race theorist. Well, that's because disparities don't prove anything. But in critical race theory, they say that racial disparities between white people and black people is evidence of racism. Biblically, we cannot say that at all. Again, because racism isn't defined by perceptions or by disparities, it's defined by intent. Mm. But if you believe that George Floyd, regardless of intent, was killed because he's a black man, or regardless of, of, um, of evidence, if you say that's an example of a, of a systemically racist culture against black people, that is that is um, reasoning and rhetoric borrowed from critical race theory. Yeah. So so they will say these things. They will embrace the, the the Black Lives Matters reasoning. They will protest with Black Lives Matter, and yet they'll say they're not really critical race theorists. Yeah. So it's, it's very concerning. Yeah, and that's such a, a a great point because just that scenario I brought up on Twitter where they're saying no 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 we reject critical race theory, but if you're white and you're bringing it up, you know, it's basically like your white fragility is showing, you know, which is you have to employ the categories of critical race theory to even come up with that thought in the first place. So uh, tell us a bit about Black Lives Matter as an organization. Uh, You've been very vocal about this. Um, What are your concerns about the organization and why are you so concerned to see church leaders using this hashtag and maybe embracing some of these ideas? Yeah. Black Lives Matter is perhaps the most brilliant um, name for an organization in in history. Because how could you say you don't believe in that? Of course, we believe that Black Lives Matter. It would be very odd if I, as a black man, didn't believe that Black Lives Matter, right? I'll be (laughs) be, uh, a fascinating man if that were the case. But it's a very cunning phrase because they know it's it's able to it, it makes it hard because even before you even even me as a black man before I answer that I need to give that preface right and it's in, I think by doing that it makes it very difficult for someone who is not thinking deeply to reject their movement but many people don't know that Black Lives Matter is much more than just a phrase. Um, it's an ideology where they really do believe that really only Black Lives Matter. Um, they won't. They they wouldn't want to admit that. But but from their reasoning, from their rhetoric, from so many of their um, of their uh, marches and rallies, it's very clear that they are a black supremacist group where they are seeking primarily the interest of black people at the expense of other people, which is of course not justice, it's an injustice, it's racist too. Um, But there are a group that is pro-abortion, of course, in British critical race theory. There are Marxists, they're openly Marxists. They're um, partnering with communist China. They're partnering with communist Cuba. Um, You know, and of course they're very political. They're not nonpartisan. They're very obvious about their political campaigns and very much they're um they're very tied to the democratic party and there are it's very clear through their marxist leanings they want to uh push more of a socialist um uh, idea so racism is really just a tool for black for black lives matter to push marxist views Mm -hmm. so they're using 
black people as props as a means to advance their movement. Um, and one of the biggest things is, you know, on the, they've removed it recently, but on their website, they very much talked about how they want to dismantle the Western uh, prescribed uh, nuclear yes. family. Yeah, I saw and, that. And, um, you know, that's something that, you know, coming with, with my background, being raised without a father and how destructive that is for me and for so many black people. That, that's the biggest issue uh, facing black people in that, you know, the abortion issue, everything goes back to the fatherlessness issue within the black community where in America, 75% of black people are, are raised with other dads in the home, which leads to, which leads to all the disparities uh, in, in, in crime, in education, in abortion, in everything. That's the mm -hmm. major issue. And yet you have the group that claims Black Lives Matter are willing to push an idea that would remove the black men from the home. Mm. If you if you do not care about fathers, then you don't care. If, if you don't care about black fathers, you don't care about black lives. As simple as that. Mm. Wow. So we have covered so many different topics uh, in this episode, but it seems like the emerging theme is life and justice, real justice. You mentioned disparities a few times, uh, equity, some of these words. Talk to us for a moment about uh, what biblical justice is, because when you were talking about abortion, you were talking about justice a lot. We need to, to vote for justice. We need to fight for justice. Uh, but I, I, as I see what the world defines as justice, and then I read what the Bible has to say about justice, I'm actually seeing two completely opposite things. And I'm, I'm sure you've observed something kind of similar. Tell us about the Bible's definition of justice versus what the world's definition might be. Mm -hmm. Real justice, biblical justice is God-centered and not man-centered. Um, injustice is always focusing on a person's interest, but or at the expense of others. But biblical justice is always seeking to honor God and is seeking to obey his word, mm. especially in terms of impartiality. Injustice is always partial. Mm. Again, you know, it's, it's always favoring one person over the other. So, for instance, with slavery and segregation, you had, you had um, a system that was favoring white people over black people. That's an injustice. Mm -hmm. Critical race theory, it's, in, it's embracing or favoring black people over white people. The Bible is very clear that, that we should not be partial to the great or the small, to the rich or the poor, right? That, in, that biblical justice, as, as, uh, as I said, that justice is blind. It really does affirm that, that justice sees God and does not see gender or skin color or anything like that, which of course, critical race theory very much does. Mm. Biblical justice is partial, sorry, it's impartial. And also in light of Black Lives Matter, this is, it's so important that um, I think we remember what um, Proverbs 17, 15 says, which is that whoever condemns the innocent and whoever justifies the wicked is an abomination before the Lord. Mm. It's an injustice to prefer one person over the other, especially when you are favoring the wicked over the innocent. And that's something I've been seeing that's been really breaking my heart 
And that you would think that we, of all people, we Christians, right, that we would want to teach the world about being slow to speak, about not assuming the worst of other people, about hoping all things, enduring all things, about, about considering other people as more significant than ourselves. But yet we have us assuming that white people, condemning white people, many of them who are innocent of much of the things being said about them, you know, them being racist or committing police brutality, we condemn them and then we, we favor and we we um, we we declare some black people who've actually committed crimes as innocent just because of their skin color, mm. and that's an injustice that the Bible very much clearly speaks against. Wow, what kind of pushback do you get on some of these ideas when you write <laughs> blog posts? What what's the response? Um, from well, well, I honestly I've been incredibly grateful. I've I received strong support. I'm receiving emails every day of people telling me that I'm giving them the confidence and the courage to speak out as well, or if not to speak out, just to resist it. Mm. Uh, I think for sometimes, not everyone can speak, but even in silence, you, you can still reject these ideas. Mm. And I think people have, uh, yeah, told me that in school, at seminary, they're being compelled um, to embrace critical race theory and all these ideologies. And um, they reached out to me saying that they've been helped by my articles, and I'm so grateful. Mm. But also, I've received <laughs> quite a lot of hate. But also, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've received, um, I've lost friends over this, um, mm. close friends. Um, I have um, received some very strong, you know, uh, so I've so I've had many white people um, commenting and emailing me saying that essentially they love black people more than I do. Wow. Um, you know, calling me an uncle Tom and calling me a, um, a coon and a traitor. Mm. Um, and of course you also have many black people who've been saying the same thing. And one of the fascinating things about that is, you know, I've been called, um, the N word maybe five to 10 times in my life. I've been called an uncle Tom a thousand times wow. more. And the thing is, if someone insults me as an Uncle Tom, so if someone calls me the N-word, they're simply saying, I hate you for being black. They're just saying, I hate your skin color. But if someone calls me an Uncle Tom or a coon or a traitor, they're saying, I hate that you are a black person with bad character who hates your own people. Mm. That's much worse. Yeah. Um, you know, one, you're just saying you hate my skin color. The other one, you're saying you hate my skin color and you hate who I am as a person. Wow. So in a moment here, we're going to move into the subscriber portion of the interview. So if you're uh, with us on Patreon, Tier 4 and above, you'll get to hear an, another few minutes of discussion as we close out with Samuel. If you're not on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, and you can sign up to be an all-access patron, where you're going to get access to uh, a private Patreon-only Facebook group. You're also going to get access to bonus content with each guest uh, moving forward uh, in the podcast. So we're going to move on to uh, that portion here in just a moment. But Samuel... 
As we close out this portion, what encouragement would you leave our listeners with? Anybody listening that is resonating with what we're saying, and they're saying, I know that he's speaking biblical truth, but the cultural pressure is so overwhelming. Even the pressure at my church, or like you mentioned, at my seminary, my Christian school, the pressure to capitulate to culture on these issues is so strong. I don't even know where to start to, to where to find this kind of courage. What, what kind of encouragement would you leave our viewers and listeners with today? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed uh, by the word of God. Um, this is not our home. We're never going to be, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, um, you will never really be, um, you know, safe and comfortable here. There's always going to be ideologies that are pushing against the truth, even within the church. Um, and I think one one of the things that I've been meditating on is, we are citizens of this world, but more than that, um, our our main citizenship is in heaven, and we await the day where our great Savior will return, and He will establish justice, and uh, there will be um, no 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 more critical race theory, no more racism, no more false ideologies. It will just be truth uh, incarnate, being the King of Kings and ruling us all in peace. Um, while we wait for that, indeed, again. Do not conform. There's so many. There's so many pressures, and if you give into if you give into that pressure today, you won't win anything. Anyways, you will you will grieve God, but it's never enough. It's mm -hmm. never enough. Um, but Christ will be pleased by your by your courage and your um, and your faithfulness to Him. Great. You can find more of Samuel's writing at slowtowrite.com. I'm praying and encouraging Samuel to write a book, so be praying for him in that as God leads. And you can follow him. What's your Twitter and Facebook? Where can people find you other than your blog online? Yeah, they can find me all across the social media platforms as uh, Slow to Write. Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Parler. Has been getting has been getting increasingly popular, so I'm yeah. on it. Uh, Facebook. Um, and uh, I think that's, yeah, that's all I can think of right now. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Samuel. It was great to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash alisachilders.